Good morning, church. Let me do that again, guys. I'm going to sing to you this morning. Good morning, church. Okay, come on now. Come on now. You make me mad up here. I'm going to sing to you. All right? That's the way, it, that's the way this works. Uh, this is not related to the sermon. Okay? This is not related to the sermon. But Danny Etling definitely got that snap off within regulation. Can I get an amen? Huh? So in my book, I got LSU up on Auburn 1918. Booyah. Okay? I am, no, seriously, I'm going to be talking about some things this morning that I believe will encourage uh, Tigers fans. And so, guys, I just want you to be aware that God has a word for you today, okay? Let me tell you a story about what I've been up to last week. It really, this really does tie into the sermon I'm going to be preaching to you this morning. Uh, part of my uh, academic training is in counseling, and to keep my license, I got to t- uh, take uh, continuing education. And so I got to go to a training in Phoenix, and this training in Phoenix was about human sexuality. And I wanted to attend because these guys who put on the training are like the best researched continuing ed group um, in my field. They just publish like crazy and they know their stuff and they're very well respected. But the guy, so I'm one of a cohort of about 140 people and I'm in a group of 70. And the guy who's teaching my group comes to the front of the class And he starts teaching views that are essentially the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And if you've heard me preach or teach for very long, what you've heard me say is that the greatest risk a Western society Christian faces, if they share their faith or if they share their stance on human morality human sexuality or human behavior, is that a Western Christian is going to be met with indifference. Because that's what I've thought for a long time. I've thought that that if a Western Christian shares his or her views uh, that as far as morality, sexuality, or behavior are concerned, what I've taught you is that the greatest risk to you or to me is that we're going to be met with indifference. But as I was sitting in this continuing ed class, and I was listening to these guys teach, and some of what they taught was really, really good, but there was a lot that they taught that was in direct contrast to what the Scripture teach. I thought to myself, if I would stand up, and if I would candidly disclose my view on human sexuality, that these guys would be angry with me, but I'm not talking about just like a frustrated type of anger. My sense in that environment, you guys, was it would be like a ferocious type of anger. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, man, these guys would be so mad at me that I could see them trying to figure out who I was and where I live and contacting my board and trying to get me tossed off of the board and lose my license if I was really direct about the views I hold as far as human sexuality is concerned, which are shaped by the Scriptures. 
And so I'm praying about WorldLink. That's the name of our sermon series. And I'm continuing that series that Alan and Mike started last week. I'm praying about WorldLink. Lord, speak to me. I want our church to hear from you in this series. And I want us to influence the world right here from West Monroe, Louisiana. And so I start reading and I'm reading the book of Acts and I get to verse 33 in chapter 5. And Acts 5.33 talks about culture encountering Peter and the disciples in the early church and being ferocious at their message. And so I was like living that right in that moment. I was feeling like if I was candid about my beliefs of human morality, human behavior, human sexuality, that the people that I was in this training with would be angry with me. But a ferocious anger, not like a frustrated anger, and that they would, my sense was, whether rational or not, that they'd come after me. So I'm reading Acts 5, and God just gave me the sense that this is where we needed to go. So I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to be reading Acts 5, 33, all the way through 42. I want to just kind of influence your understanding on how the culture we live in today is really similar to the culture Peter and the early church found themselves in the middle of when they were starting their church building ministry. Okay? And then I want to talk to you about the most dangerous cultural position we can be in as Christians in Western culture. And then I want to talk to you about how to be a game changer of that culture, how to avoid that biggest pitfall and how to change the culture at large that we live in. So hang with me. Let's go Acts chapter five. I'm going to be reading verses 33 through 42. Okay. The Bible says this, when they heard this, They were furious and wanted to put Peter and the disciples in the early church to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. That would be the church leaders and Peter who are there before these guys. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed. All of it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, capital N being the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So back in Peter's day, when culture met truth, 
the response was anger. Back when Peter and the early church disciples were starting the New Testament church and culture met truth, the cultural response was a ferocious anger. I did some research to try and decide how exactly the culture became angry. So if you would read Acts chapter 1 through verse 5, you'd come across three verses that are significant. Let me give them to you really quickly. In Acts chapter 4 verse 2, the Bible says, They, meaning the culture, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the bottom of that verse, they, being the culture, were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So, so first, these guys are disturbed. Man, there's a group of people who are preaching the name of Jesus Christ and resurrection from the dead. And then they're astonished. These guys do really seem to have been from Jesus. And then in Acts 5.17, which precedes the text that we read this morning, the Bible says, Then the high priest and all his, Sadduce- all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And here's where we really get the crux of the ferocious anger of the culture in Peter's day. The culture in Peter's day and in the time of the New Testament church had something significant to lose if the gospel was true. The culture of Peter's day And the time of the New Testament church had something significant to lose if the message of the gospel was true. The Israelite kingdom was a theocracy, meaning that God was the leader of the nation and it was religiously governed. And that religious governing body was called the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the setting for our selected text this morning. And the Sanhedrin required, if you were going to be a leader in that nation or that specific political body, that you had to be a national Jew. Your family had to be Jewish. And not only did you have to nationally be a Jew, you had to be a spiritual Jew. You had to be circumcised according to Mosaic law. You had to obey the dietary restrictions Mosaic law imposed on Jews. And you had to observe calendar days that were significant in Jewish religious style of worship. And if you didn't get any of these areas correct, you didn't qualify to be a leader in that culture. Now here comes Peter and John and the New Testament church leaders, and they're saying it isn't about nationality. It's about spirituality and whose spiritual kingdom you belong to. And it isn't about an outward circumcision, it's about a circumcision of the heart. And it's not about how quickly or or quality of, of behavior you engage in day to day in terms of Mosaic law. It's about the grace that's been bestowed upon your life by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if what Peter was saying was true then anybody could become a cultural leader. And that greatly distressed the cultural leaders of the New Testament church society. Today, in our culture, 
in Western civilization, there is a group of they in our culture. And those are individuals who have something to lose if the message of the gospel is true. But it's not the same, it's not the same discussion. It's not about national heritage and it's not about Mosaic law. It's about family and sexuality. I, I got a quote here that I want to read to you from George Friedman. He wrote a book called The Next Hundred Years. Here's what he says. Traditional Catholicism, fundamental Protestantism, Orthodox Judaism, and various branches of, uh, branches of Buddhism all take very similar positions. All of these religions are being split internally, as are all societies. In the United States, where we speak of the culture wars, listen to this. The battlefield is the family and its definition. All societies are being torn between traditionalists and those who are attempting to redefine, hear this, the family, women, and sexuality. We're not fighting a national legalistic battle the way Peter was. We're fighting a spiritual, relational, sexual battle in our culture today. But what's true across time is that in each setting, there were groups of individuals who had something to lose if the message that Jesus preached was true. Now, I wanted to make that case first before we get into how to change culture on a worldwide scale by informing you that there is a pitfall culturally that Christians are at risk of falling into. And before you can be a game changer and change culture on a worldwide level, you have to make sure you avoid this cultural pitfall. So that's the second thing I wanted to talk to you about. The first thing I want to talk to you about is in culture, when truth is spoken, it's culture's no longer indifferent. It's angry. But affluent individuals who encounter truth are indifferent and apathetic. Let me read you what uh, uh, Gamaliel's uh, response was in Acts chapter 5. You'll remember he says, guys, let, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. That's an indifferent response to the message of the gospel. So who exactly was Gamaliel? Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, identifies him in Acts 5.34. He says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. In some of your translations, instead of teacher of the law, it could say doctor of the law, or it could say was upright in the law in all his ways. The bottom line is, in Jewish society, this individual, Gamaliel, was arguably the most prominent academic individual on the planet. And when he stood up in the highest, most respected court of the land, everybody stood and turned at attention. And he meets this message 
with indifference. Hey, if it's from God, you can't do anything to stop it. And if it's not, we're not going to have to do anything to stop it because it's going to burn itself out anyway. He's completely indifferent to the message. And if you'd survey the book of Acts, this isn't the only time an affluent individual is indifferent to the message of the gospel. Agrippa, a prominent leader during the time of Paul's ministry in Acts 26, 28, says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Other translations say you've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Here's somebody who was extremely affluent and because of his affluence, he was apathetic and indifferent to the message of the gospel. Now, you guys... Just to make this case, if we're thinking globally in terms of affluence, every person under the sound of my voice is in the top 1% worldwide. Now, nationally, maybe none of us up in here are in the top 1%, right? But worldwide, we're extremely affluent. And the reason I think this is the most dangerous pitfall for Christians in Western society today is because we don't have a good sense of how our own affluence affects our thinking. And I think we misunderstand the realm in which the cultural battle we're fighting takes place. Remember, culture meeting truth in Peter's day was all about nationalism and legalism. That was the battleground. Culture in our day is all about spirituality, relationship, and sexuality. So the battleground for uh, affluence in Peter's day, looks different than the battleground of affluence in our day. Let me give you this quote by a guy named Jacob Needleman, Money and the Meaning of Life. This will make it make sense to you. In our time and our culture, the battlefield of this life is, say that with me, money. In our time and culture, the battlefield of life is money. Instead of horses, chariots, guns, and fortresses, There are banks, checkbooks, credit cards, mortgages, salaries, and the IRS. Now, were there mortgages, checking accounts, credit cards, salaries, and the IRS during the time of Peter in the early church? No. Our culture looks a little bit different than theirs does, but the battleground is essentially the same. Instead of being whipped, beaten, and flogged physically... Our bank accounts, mortgages, credit cards, and the IRS get involved in threatening ways. Okay? All right, Trent, that makes sense, but I still misunderstand how Christians today can get lost in this pitfall. Here's what I'm meaning. Okay? Let's hypothetically say that at this church we had a benefit singing for flood victims in South Louisiana. Okay? Let's just hypothetically say that, right? Now... Lots of us, remember, you're affluent, and here's the tongue-in-cheek. If you're visiting today, like a week ago, we had a a singing to benefit flood victims in South Louisiana, okay? So that's the inside joke I'm making. So let's hypothetically say we have a benefit to uh, uh, help flood victims in South Louisiana. And let's say it's also true that you're affluent. Here's how I think you fall into the affluent trap like Gamaliel did today. Here's what I think we say to ourselves. Well, you know, I could go to that benefit and I could buy a ticket and they could contribute my 10 bucks for my ticket to those guys in South Louisiana. 
But if God's really behind that ministry, it's going to be blessed even if I'm not there. And if God isn't behind that ministry, it's not really going to go anywhere, even if I contribute a little bit more than my ticket. And, and guys, look, listen to me. We're all a little bit guilty of having that mentality. It isn't like somebody's going to stand up on a pew, right, and say, I don't want the gospel to get preached. I don't, I don't, I don't want you sharing that in my neighborhood. None of us are going to come against that directly. But when this is required, that's where I'm going to meet culture with indifference and I'm going to be indifferent to the things God is doing in the world that I live in. I'm not going to be indifferent explicitly, directly, verbally when somebody's trying to go forth and evangelize. But the second you ask me to involve a little bit of this, which is where the battleground really exists... I'm out. And it's not that I'm out. It's just that I'm indifferent. I'm exactly like Gamaliel. Well, if this is from God, it's going to go whether or not I give a little bit. And if it's not, even if I show up and give a little bit more, ain't nothing going to happen with that. And I think that's where we get caught up. So the first thing you've got to understand is your culture today is no longer indifferent. It's angry. And you've got to approach it differently. First, by making sure you're not falling into the trap of affluence, which leads to indifference. So what is it that you need to be doing? I'm going to mention six things, and then I am shutting this show down. If I spend two minutes on each thing, that's 12 minutes, 11.27, and then we'll do communion, and we're out of here. You guys are going to be golden. All right, hang with me. Uh, the first thing, so I'm looking to figure out what are Peter and the, and the disciples of the early church doing to change that cultural climate. Because I've just made a case for you that our cultural climate is really similar to theirs. First thing they're doing, they know their qualifications. They know what their qualifications are. Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What were the qualifications of Peter and John? None. They had zero. They were unschooled, ordinary men. I like to say it, say it like this. These guys were extraordinarily ordinary. But they understood that their life experiences qualified them for ministry. And yours do too. And if you're going to be a game changer, then you've got to come to terms with the fact that God created you uniquely to be you. And the thing that, things that you've lived through in life... God intends to use for the purposes of bringing about more people into the kingdom. And game changers also know that being unschooled and ordinary doesn't necessarily mean I've never overcome anything. And so the truth about you is the things that you've overcome in life, you need to be helping other people overcome. And you need to do that by understanding that the things that you love to do, those are your specific callings in ministry do you love to duck hunt i mean imagine this imagine how crazy it would be if somebody that really loved duck hunting would like do that for the glory of god and like build this huge cool empire that's christ-centered that like is all about hunting ducks that seems impossible right i mean that's crazy to think you could take your love of duck, duck hunting nationwide and change people's lives through your love of duck hunting what if you like quilting 
I don't care what it is that you like. Whatever it is that you love, that you're passionate about, that's your area of calling. Do it and invite people to get involved with it and love it. Okay? So these guys also thought small. That's the next thing game changers do. They know their qualifications and they think small. Culture is huge. If you try to take on culture all at once, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. So you got to think on a smaller scale, okay? You need a little drip from a hose rather than a huge rush of water from a fire hydrant. In Acts 4.23, Peter and John get in prison, and when they're released, they go back to their own people. Now, I want to tell you what Trent does if he's wrongfully accused and put in prison, okay? When I leave, I cower in a corner like a girl and hide and get super anxious about anybody that looks like an authority figure, okay? These guys are not like me. These guys get released from prison and they go back to, I underline this, they go back to their own people and they talk to them and they minister to them and they encourage them. Why are these guys able to give something to others after they had just experienced trial and hardship in their own life? Because they knew themselves and had already worked through some of their areas of weakness in their own hearts. So that when they encountered hardship, they still had something left over to give. And I thought about going through all these little small things like James says, control your tongue. That's one small thing you can do if you know that you're a little bit uh, quick to speak and slow to listen, for example. But the Bible teaches us lots of that kind of stuff. And you know what it is you need to be working on. Work on it and know yourself and come to terms with it and own it so that you can minister to others, which requires you to know a little bit about them and their needs too. But to do that, you've got to avoid apathy in your own self. What a tragedy that Gamaliel can say the things that he said and still be indifferent to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The guys who were doing ministry in the New Testament church never took the miracle of Jesus Christ for granted. Peter says, you guys, he's speaking. He says, you guys killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And we're so confident and so certain and so faithful to Jesus Christ that there is nothing that can distract us from being witnesses no matter where we go. Because we can't take it for granted. We saw it. And your guys' faith allows you to see the power of the gospel manifest itself in your lives. Even though it's a different setting, it's the same situation. And you, the way you stay uh, engaged as opposed to apathetic is by not taking the majesty and miracle of the gospel for granted. And and these guys also were not afraid to put themselves in a little bit of a dangerous situation for the sake of the gospel, which caused them to take a fresh look at the gospel every time. I mean, it's one thing to say the gospel's got power to get me out of any situation, and that's another thing to put myself in a situation that makes that seem a little iffy and still act as though that's true. And when it's proved to be true, it causes me to see the gospel through fresh eyes. And the reason some of us take the gospel for granted is because I never put myself on the threshold of failure for the sake of the gospel. And so I never get to see the gospel through fresh eyes. It's just the same songs and the same prayers and the same scriptures over and over for years. And pretty soon I start to take it for granted. And pretty soon I get apathetic. And I start saying that singing that we're having to benefit South Louisiana flood victims will go on fine without me. No, it won't. 
It will not. We need you to not be apathetic. We need you to be engaged. God wants you to be engaged. That's why he sent his son to die for your transgressions. Not so you can warm pews and pray the same prayers, but so you can put yourself on the threshold of danger and thrive in the middle of it and look at the gospel through brand new, fresh eyes. These guys were able to do that because they understood that victory was theirs guaranteed. They actually lived in a state of victory. I'm moving fast. I'm, gonna, I'm moving even faster now, but I want to read Acts 5.39. In your Bible, this needs to be underlined, highlighted, exclamation pointed, and starred to the side. Gamaliel says, if what they're saying is from God, you are not going to be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. The reason this is so powerful is Gamaliel's not a Christian here. Every other time we get a verse like this that's a guaranteed win... It's said by somebody who's already following Christ. You can look all in the Old Testament. Psalm 1, you'll be like a tree planted by river of wa- rivers of water which brings forth your fruit in your season. Your leaf also won't li- wither. And whatever you do will prosper. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll grant you, will grant you the desire of your heart. Galatians 6, 7. Whatever you sow, you are guaranteed to reap. All of those things are said by people who are following God. Here we see a guy who's not following God that has to admit this God that these guys are speaking about is powerful. And if we come against their message, we're going to lose. So it would be better for us because they're saying some of the right things for us not even to engage. Because we're never going to win that battle. And the same thing is true for you today. You are guaranteed victory in Jesus Christ. Can I get a witness, y'all? You're guaranteed victory in Jesus Christ. I don't care. I don't, it doesn't matter to me what you're up against. And I promise you, I give all deference to your daily struggles. I get it. I'm, I'm human too. But whether or not you're battling cancer or marital disharmony or death in the family or a loved one who's struggling with drugs and alcohol, whatever it is, in Jesus' name, victory is yours. If God is behind you, then nothing, then nothing, then nothing can stand against you. So these guys knew, praise God, right? And I wanted to go into, and I'm not going to, but you guys need to. You should read the books of First and Second Peter with this in mind. Here's a guy who lived through all these struggles and hardships and overcame them. And then he makes these statements like, you know, when you suffer for doing good, it, you're blessed and God's honored. But they saw hardship as opportunities for growth, which caused them to live in joy. So they could endure hardship. Any hardship that anybody threw at them, they could endure What happens after they're flogged and threatened under pain of death to never speak the name of Jesus again? What do these guys do? They don't do the Trent technique. They don't take an extra antidepressant. They don't curl up in bed. They don't buy extra firearms and ammunition and hole up inside their home like with extra security cameras in place. Watch this. They rejoice. They rejoice because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace, For the name of Jesus Christ. 
They lived in a state of perpetual joy. They were perpetual optimists. And finally, they were consistent. These guys kept on going. Let me read you that last verse from our selection today, and I'm going to close. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, these guys never stopped praising God and proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. They never stopped. Here's what we do to ourselves. We assume that we got to be getting it perfect to have an influence. We assume that we got to know all the right answers to the toughest biblical questions or say the right prayers or make the right um, decisions or be in the right groups. Uh, you don't have to be perfect. As a matter of fact, if any of these New Testament church leaders showed up in our church, probably some of these more prominent guys would be like, don't sit by that guy. He denied Jesus three times, and like everybody in the community knows about it. And so if, you, if you're seen with this guy, people are going to think you have low integrity because everybody knows about this guy. These guys were not perfect people. They were far from it. But you know what the one thing that they did that game changers always do was? They never, never, never stopped. They never stopped. They really stank like a lot of different times. But they never let the enemy say to them, see, your imperfections make you worthless. See, your mistakes mean you're never going to make a difference. See, your failures are going to be found out and everybody's going to discredit you. They knew that victory had already been won in Jesus. And so they kept on going. They never stopped. I'm going to pray. My hope is that God's ministered to you through this and that you found something that you would like for us to pray with you about. We want to pray with you if that's something that you're interested in and encourage you as you're trying to be a game changer in our culture. Bow with me while we pray. Lord, thanks so much for your word and um, the opportunity to speak. I ask in the name of Jesus, God, that you would move powerfully in our church and allow us to really get behind the cool stuff you're doing nationwide right here through this church in West Monroe, Louisiana. It starts with each individual getting closer to you and then getting so fired up about that they can't help but transform the world. We love you and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.